Let's go now to the last book of the Bible, Revelation uh, chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11 is uh, where the passage is that we're looking at today. Revelation 11, verses 15 to to 19. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign for ever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. The alarm goes off at 6am and the weather report says it's 12 degrees, we're expecting 19 in Geelong today and all you want to do is roll over and go back to sleep. But you know that um, you must get up, you must use your time well, there is stuff to be achieved today. Uh, What you do makes a difference, and uh, if you lie in bed for another half an hour, it's wasted, gone forever, you'll never have that time back, you must rise and get going. Well, maybe your view of time is not quite as uh, obsessive as that, you know, Uh, but all of us believe that time marches on, don't we? We believe that History is going somewhere, and that what we do makes a difference. But, you know, that's, that's kind of a minority opinion. That's a very Western view of time. And it has not been held right down through history by most people, and it's not even held by most people in the world today. Take the nations around about Israel when they were, you know, in, in their day. In Egypt, history was seen as kind seen as an unending repetition of the same thing. Round and round, the same thing would go endlessly. In Babylon, time was seen in a similar kind of way. There is no overall goal. There are just periods of time that come and go. In in, in our world today, those who are Hindus, those who are Buddhists, and that's a massive part of the population of the world today, they also see time and history as being cyclical. Um, Time is an endless um, cycle of death and reincarnation. And maybe there's a possibility, if someone is good enough, over many cycles of life, to break out of that that cycle and to finally 
reach nirvana. But that's the exception rather than the rule. For most people, life is just round and round. Now, one of the distinctive things about the Bible is that the Bible definitely does not see time as being cyclical in that kind of way. There is purpose in history. There are significant events that affect history. You know, history began with the creation of the universe by God. The most significant event in history was the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And history is going somewhere. There is an end. God has a purpose for history. What God, what God has accomplished in the past and what we do from, you know, what we do now in our lives is meaningful. It's significant. It makes a difference. The book of Revelation tells us a lot about the flow of history and it tells us something about the last day as well. And this chapter that we've, or this section that we've read today in chapter 11 is an initial glimpse of the last day. It's the seventh trumpet. It is the last day. And what we have here is, is really only a glimpse of the last day. You now it's a bit like a, 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 a sketch, a, a pencil sketch that's roughly drawn out. And as the book of Revelation goes on, so the author will fill in lots more paint and colour and dimension uh, and uh, uh, the picture will become deeper and more detailed. But all we have here is the initial sketch. But still, even that tells us a great deal. So let's look at this passage now. Um, and let's see it in two halves. The first half, verses 15 to 17, gives us a foundational truth about the last day. And then verses uh, 18 to 19 present three implications of that foundational truth. So first of all, the foundational truth. Verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And verse 17 expresses the same thing in different words. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So the idea is that the Lord and his Christ have begun to reign. They've taken up their rule and begun to reign on the last day. Now you might say, well, isn't, isn't God already the ruler of the universe? Hasn't Christ already ascended to the right hand of God? And isn't he already ruling the world now? And we say, yes, of course. Of course, that's true. God is ruling and he is sovereign. But it is not true that his sovereignty is undisputed. Who, who would dare to dispute that God is ruling? Who, who is trying to argue that God doesn't rule? 
Well, I think the answer should actually make us tremble. Because it is the devil and his hosts who, who argue that God is not in charge, even though they know that he is. But also, I say that God is not in charge. And you say that God is not in charge. And I do that every day and you do that every day. This morning we read the Ten Commandments. And we know that all of us disobey the Ten Commandments, don't we? Let's just take one example. Take the Sixth Commandment about murder. Jesus says that even calling your brother a fool or your sister or your mother or your father or your child, anyone, is breaking the sixth is breaking the sixth commandment. Calling someone a fool is like murdering that person. So, you know, you get angry with your brother. And at that moment, at that moment of anger, you do not care what God says. You do not trust that God's way is right. All you do is want to indulge your anger. And you call uh, your brother a fool. And what you have done is placed a God before God, before the Lord God Almighty. Your own desire at that moment has become more important to you than God's will. Not only have you broken the sixth commandment about murder, you've also broken the first commandment, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, it's just a simple example. But what about the whole shape, the whole tenor of your life? You know, um, is your life dedicated to obeying God? Is it dedicated to His glory? Or is it devoted to self-advancement, self-security, Self-glory. I suspect that for most of us, there's a mixture. You know, isn't this the, isn't this the biblical picture of what we're like? Deep down, we, we want to serve God. We want to glorify God, first of all. But we find ourselves denying that commitment all the time, every day. It's, that's, that's the biblical picture of what we're like. We, we want to serve God, but we know that we fail so often. And Jesus knows that that's true about us. Jesus knows us, of course. So he knows that that's the case, and so he commands us in the Lord's Prayer to pray for forgiveness of our sins. That's what we're like as Christians. For, for, so, so this is who we are as Christians. And for those who do not, you know, for most people who don't believe in God at all, there is not a single thought of honouring God first. God is kind of irrelevant. And so when you think about it, just, just think about it. Just think about the world today. There is not a single 
person in the world, in the whole world today, Christian or unbeliever, who is completely single-minded and perfect about obeying God. There has only ever been one person like that. The one person like that is our Lord Jesus Christ. But now, there is no one like that at all, anywhere in the whole world. Here is the, here is the whole world screaming rebellion against God, constantly. And I'm involved in that, and you're involved in that. Just think of it. The whole population of the world trying to un-God God. No wonder Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, one day, that will no longer be the case. On the last day, we will see with the greatest joy, with, with this amazing sense of relief, that today, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The battle will be over. The struggle with sin will be over. God's people will be made perfect. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a day. Isn't that, a, isn't that something to look forward to? No, this, this present situation of the whole world trying to un-God God, that'll, that'll be finished, it'll be done, it'll be over. You know, it's a massive blessing that we can find forgiveness for our sins now through Jesus Christ. But one day there'll be the even greater blessing of not even having to find forgiveness of our sins anymore because that'll be done with, it'll be finished. There won't be anyone anymore trying to un-God God. On the last day there will be no one left to dispute the sovereignty of God. And that will be to God's great glory. And it will be to our immense relief. So, it's a great day, isn't it? It's a day to look forward to. The first part of this passage tells us a little bit about that day. The day when all sin is dealt with. It's all gone. It's all finished. But now the second part of the passage talks about three implications of that. And I'd just like to point them out as well. Three implications. God's enemies will be judged. That's number one. Number two, God's people will receive their reward. And number three, God will live with his people in unbroken fellowship forever. First of all then, God's enemies will be judged. Verse 18 begins and ends with judgment. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. And then the last line of the verse, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Now there is actually a strong echo of Psalm 2 here. That's why we read it before. You know, Psalm 2 speaks of the Lord and his anointed one. And this passage speaks of the Lord and his Christ. An anointed one equals Christ. So it's the same people. The Lord 
and his Christ have taken up their rule. And just as in Psalm 2, there are nations who are angry, but now the Lord and his Christ are judging the enemies of God. The punishment always fits the crime. Uh, It says in verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. And these two words, angry and wrath, come from the same word group in Greek. Um, The nations are enraged, but God is judging them with his rage. Uh, End of the verse, those who destroy the earth are themselves destroyed. It's an eye for an eye. In the administration of God's justice, the punishment always fits the crime. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's only in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are free from that. You know, it's only, it, then in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's an eye for his eye. But for all those who deny Christ, it's an eye for an eye. There's no shield, there's no protection. It's a, it's a fearsome picture. There's an old cliche running around that says, well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of judgment and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. And I used to think, well, that's just a cliche and nobody really believes that. Nobody really thinks that, do they? And I've been teaching Old Testament now for one term and I've discovered that people really really do believe that. They really do. They really do believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment and then his grace and his mercy are revealed in the New Testament. And they only believe that because they haven't read the Old Testament, by and large. And so one of the great pleasures of teaching Old Testament is to point out that in the Old Testament, God is also a God of grace and mercy and love and patience with his people. And people see it. And they say, ah, that's great. Thank you, I'm glad that I'm seeing that now. But now the other side of the coin also has to be part of our our, our, our view. Um, Not only is God gracious in the Old Testament, he is also concerned with judgment in the New Testament. That is, God is gracious and loving and also just in the Old Testament, and God is gracious and loving and also just in the New Testament. God is just as serious about the judgment of his enemies in the New Testament as he is in the Old. Jesus says a great deal about judgment in his teaching. And the crime is enormous seeking to un-God God, seeking to put ourselves as a replacement for God, and the punishment fits the crime. And so here is the first implication of the last day when, when, when God's rule is absolutely undisputed. The final judgment of God's enemies. Those who raged against him will experience his rage Now, all of us are guilty of trying to replace God, aren't we? We saw that before. 
And so all of us need to come to Jesus Christ to find shelter from the rage of God. The judgment of the last day came early for Christ. He, he, he suffered that judgment for his people. He dealt with that judgment. He died and rose again. He's alive today. For us, the judgment of the last day has come early. It has come. It has been dealt with. It has come unto Christ. It has been cancelled out for those who trust in Christ. And all that's left is our reward. And the statement about reward here is kind of sandwiched in the middle of verse 18. You know, verse 18 begins with judgment and ends with judgment, but in the middle of verse 18, we read, The time has come for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great. And we don't actually see anything about the reward here. Well, nothing, nothing specific, but that, that is explained in the rest of Revelation. But part of the great reward is that we are with God forever. That sin is finished with. That we don't no longer have to struggle anymore with sin because God has fully and finally dealt with it through Christ. And so, the, 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 so we see that third implication that God will live with his people in unbroken fellowship forever. Verse 19, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. The ark of the covenant. Um, the ark of the covenant in the Old Testament was uh, a symbolic of God's presence with his people and also God's separation from his people. You know, presence with his people, God, God dwelt with his people in the middle of the, of the nation. The Ark of the Covenant was there in the middle of the nation. God was with his people, but God was also separated from his people because the, the Ark of the Covenant was inside the Holy of Holies, which was inside the holy place, which was inside the temple or inside the tabernacle. And no one could go into that central place except once a year and except with all kinds of regulations. Um, you know, the Ark of the Covenant is God's presence with his people, but it's also God's separation from his people. But now in verse 19, the temple has been opened and the ark is there for all to see. All believers, verse 18 says, small and great, all believers will be in God's presence forever. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened? What happened to the curtain that sealed off that, that central place? Well, it was ripped in two, wasn't it? Separation from God was ripped in two. Jesus Christ has opened the way to God and the way is open. And we will all see God face to face and live with him forever. This is the great blessing. This is the great reward. It, it, it's opened up in Revelation. I'll just read a couple of verses from Revelation 21. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In verse 22 of that chapter, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There, there's, no, there's no holy of holies. There's no holy place. There's no temple even. God is the temple. We meet with him. We are with him forever and ever. So, where are you today? You know, history is not a, an endless cycle repeating itself over and over. History is going somewhere. History has an end. The there is going to be a last day. And today, we are closer to that day than we were yesterday, aren't we? You know, the day is coming. The day will reveal that our final destiny depends upon our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with him now. We, we enjoy fellowship with God now. Our sins are forgiven through Christ. We are, we are right with him. But it's fellowship through a kind of a smoky glass, isn't it? One day that smoky glass will be taken away. Our fellowship will be face to face. And so think about it. Think, uh, think today about who you are serving. Notice the enormity of sin. Sin is ungodding God. It's saying, I'm going to take God's place on the throne. Think about who you are serving. The punishment will fit the crime. And because the crime is so enormous, so the punishment will be enormous. But God is God. He rules. And one day, every creature will acknowledge that fact. What a, what a, what a relief. What an immense relief that we can find forgiveness in Christ. Look to him. Continue to look to him. He is your reward. He is your great hope. Shall we come to God in prayer? Our gracious Father in heaven, we do thank you for the glimpse of the last day that we've seen today. Thank you that our lives are not endless, meaningless cycles. Thank you that history is going somewhere. Lord, it's, it's tempting for us to live in a meaningless, cyclic sort of way, just living each day and then living the next day and the next day and the next day and the weeks come and go and the years come and go. Lord, help us to see that our lives are never meaningless, that we can fit into the direction and plan and purpose that you have set for history. Help us to look forward to that day. Help us to be ready for that day. Forgive us when we try to take your, your place in our lives. Forgive us for trying to be our own gods. Help us rather to honour you and to strain towards the goal for which you have called us heavenward in Christ.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.